This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately dividing the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line to our first-time listeners. We're so glad that you can be with us here at 88.7 FM or at WAGP.net for those who are live streaming. Uh, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a issue that you're struggling with in your personal life and you want biblical counsel or a passage of Scripture or theological truth you're wrestling with. Well, if we can help, by God's grace, we will. Again, the local South Carolina 843 exchange is 843-525-1859 or toll-free at 877 the call letters WAGP 980, or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Uh, when you call, you can dictate your question, uh, though we certainly give preference to live callers, so you can go on the air live, you can stay on the air, or you can hang up, whatever you're comfortable doing. So with that said, we've had a number of questions come in already, and Rick, let's go ahead and get started. Well, we always give preference to live callers, Pastor, and we have Bob on line one, so let's get to him right now. Thanks for holding. Good morning, Bob. You are on the Bible line. Hey, Bob. uh, Yeah, welcome. Glad to have you. A couple of books that we're supposed to be discussing that are are, uh, Men's Christian Fellowship tomorrow morning. It's about two books, Hardbanger 1 and and the, the one that's stressing is Harbinger Two by a fellow named Jonathan Kahn. I read a, a couple of paragraphs about these books, and I, I think it's nonsense. But I, I, uh, I would like to, I would like your opinion. If, if, or have you read the books? Yeah, so I, I, I've skimmed them. Um, I, to be honest with you, I have little time for most of the uh, popular fictional books. Uh, I, I'm just too busy. So uh, there's very little fiction or even nonfiction that I read. Most of my time is spent, uh, you know, digging into the finer points of Scripture. But the basic thrust is that, um, you know, he believes there is a future for America and that somehow America, and I say that by in the sense that he believes America somehow is contained in the biblical prophetic record. And it is nonsense. Um, America is not mentioned anywhere in the Scripture except in the broadest sense that all the nations of the world will come against Israel uh, during such times as the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. Uh, And there, again, the word that's used is ethnoi. uh, When the Bible speaks of nations— it refers uh, not simply to geographical regions, though geography may certainly constitute a particular ethnoi or national, national group of people. 
used to be that Germany was largely made up of Germans. Now, before long, they're going to have more Muslims from other countries of the world than they'll actually have Germans. So everything's changing. But some countries are certainly like that. So in that sense, America is indeed uh, applicable uh, to the sense that the nations of the world come. But the basic premise that he starts with uh, concerning um, the USA and some of the uh, interpolations he makes from Scripture really just can't be defended uh, from Holy Scripture. When you think about a nation that is significant prophetically, you should only think of one primary nation, and that's Israel because virtually all of the future prophetic plan is in relationship to Israel. Now, I'm not saying he's a heretic or he's an unbeliever or anything like that. Uh, he, he's a Messianic Jew, and he knows Yeshua to be his personal Savior. But there's a lot of stuff that comes out that is sensational. It sells books. People want to buy it. They're looking for something they can hold on to. Um, and it's just, uh, it's, it's not a good thing to do. You know, sadly, sensationalism does sell. It does fill pews. But in the end, people are typically disappointed because they find out that sensationalism is not what they think it is. So that's just a brief answer. Um, so, uh, again, I've skimmed the books. I, I have them. But um, to me, I, I just don't have time for them. Good question. Let's go to the next one. And by the way, if you're doing a Bible study, other than maybe answering, you know, a question about the legitimacy of the book, why focus on something like that? There's so much better things that you could do, and if you're interested in the prophetic schedule, why not use some uh, teachings and works that are done by solid Bible teachers? So to me, it's not the best stewardship of what the Bible study itself is doing. Let's go to the next question. Yeah, you know, Pastor, you talk about uh, other authors that uh, have really studied this well. I had an opportunity last week to uh, dialogue with um, Kirby Anderson yeah. uh, from point of view. He was doing the live show here, and he said, ah, I saw that you uh, uh, had uh, your World Missions Conference, and uh, I saw you had some wonderful speakers, but the one that he was most excited about was Tommy Ice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 th- yeah. that uh, speaker who does so much on uh, uh, looking at the the. Book of the Revelation, prophetic events, and uh... yeah. So Tommy Ice with uh, Dr. Tim LaHaye, uh, decades ago established the Pre-Trib Research Center, and so he spent a good portion of his life uh, working with Tim LaHaye until Tim went on to heaven. But his salaries are basically paid by that organization, and uh, nonetheless, uh, he's produced a lot of good material, written a lot of good books. Um, and a lot of thought-provoking things. So why not read something that's going to get you into the text of Scripture contextually, uh, accurately, historically, than some crazy, wacko, you know, book? And there's so many of them out there. Indeed. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Todd from Sacco, Maine, writes, In one of your sermons, you used a legal term used in a court. The legal word was in conjunction that if a crime had evidence against, this legal term represents evidence towards. I'd be most interested if this legal term or word could be shared with me. That being said, I listened to all your sermons on WBCI 105.9 out of Portland. 
Well, I'm not sure specifically what sermon you're referring to, but we've been airing the book of Romans, I think. Wasn't that the last complete book we were airing on Search the Scriptures? And, mm, let's see. Uh, this, uh, I, I think so. I think yep. it just finished recently. Probably, yeah. So with that said, my guess is uh, the, the legal term that typically comes to mind where we say it comes from the legal realm would be the term justification. So I'm assuming that that's what you're referring to, but without the specifics, um, I don't know absolutely. But let me just turn to Romans 3. I've flipped over there. And uh, it says here, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And of course, that verse is in the context of what he has been arguing in terms of justification, being declared righteous on the basis of faith and not by works. So Paul, beginning in one eighteen of Romans, begins to show how every group of people in a culture cannot claim innocence before God because they're guilty. No one can claim even ignorance about God because God has shown himself to every group of people, whether it's the hardcore, uh, rebellious Gentile pagan in Romans 1 or the highly religious Jew in Romans 2. And so then he argues in 3.21, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That is, it's been made known. And then he adds, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, meaning the law and the prophets are what we call the Old Testament, taught this same truth that man was not saved by human effort, by good works, which is what the average person in Paul's day, Jew and Gentile alike thought, but by grace alone, through faith alone. And he'll document that in the fourth chapter by going after Israel's two most famous people, Abraham and David, and show that God saved them on the basis of grace. But then he says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. The truth is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Then he adds, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. There are some terms that every Christian should know, like justification, redemption, propitiation, demonstration. Those are all used in this portion of Scripture in Romans 3. And the temptation for a lot of Christians today is to think, well, I can't understand those words. Uh, Those are terms for pastors and for theologians. That's precisely what the devil wants you to believe, where God wants us to grow up in Christ. That's why I say, you know, this Bible study, the first caller, I mean, why not do something that will get you into the text of Scripture than dealing with a lot of fictional stuff? You know, do do something that's worthwhile. Um, So God says you can understand them, and that's why he wrote them here in the Word. And, of course, the word justified is borrowed from the legal realm. It's a courtroom term. It means to be declared righteous. And so he says, you're being justified. That is, you've been declared righteous on the basis of your faith in Jesus Christ, not by works. There's not degrees of justification. It's a legal act where God declares you righteous. It doesn't say that he makes you righteous. He declares you righteous. Righteousness is a legal term where God views you as holy. Sometimes people say say it means just as if you never sinned. Well, I suppose that's not bad. Dr. Graham used to always use it in that respect, and he was a great evangelist. But there's a positive aspect to it, just as if you had always obeyed. So 
justification wipes the slate clean, and then God legally declares you righteous in your sight. And so that's important. It's one thing to be forgiven. It's another thing to be credited with Christ's righteousness. And so in the New Testament, every blood-bought, born-again Christian is called a saint. Uh, Sainthood is not reserved for a select few. It's true of every Christian. And so even the most inconsistent, immature, sometimes even rebellious Christians, like in the Corinthian church, they're called saints of God. Why? Because it's a position they share. And so justification declares us righteous. In the broadest sense, sanctification is that process where we are becoming righteous. That is, we are beginning to live out the position that God has said to be true of us. And so um, when you're declared righteous and holy, God now wants you in your practice to become holy. And someday the two will intersect justification and sanctification at glorification when God completes our salvation. So on the one hand, we have been saved from the penalty of sin, being declared righteous or saints. That's called justification. We are being saved daily by the power, by the control of sin as we grow up in Christ. That's called sanctification. But someday we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. That's called glorification. And that happens when we see the Lord, we will see him and we'll be like him, John says. Uh, Paul says in Philippians that our bodies will be transformed into the likeness of his own. And so body, soul, and spirit will be completed totally, and our salvation will be finished. And of course, the promises is that when God declares you righteous, the one who started the process will finish the process. It's an unbroken chain. It's permanent. All right, let's go to the next question. 525-1859, locally, 843 South Carolina Exchange, if you want to go on the air live. We have another email question. We do. Gordon from Port Royal writes about 1 John 1.8. This seems harsh since he is talking to Christians who are deceiving themselves and whom there is no truth. Can you explain this further? Well, um, 1 John's an interesting book. He is writing, he tells us in the beginning of uh, the first chapter so that we can have fellowship with the Father and with his Son. Uh, And so there is a distinction between having a relationship with God and having fellowship with God. The moment you are saved, you are declared righteous, you enter into an eternal relationship with the Lord. That can never, ever, ever be changed. But the intimacy that you know with God, <clears throat> excuse me, can be changed when you sin. And so just as I'm born of my earthly father, that relationship could never be severed because I was born of him. But our ability to enjoy one another was predicated on the way we treated each other. That's what we might refer to as fellowship with God. And so John is dealing, among other things, with false teachers. Most would look at 1 John as dealing with the issue of pre-Gnosticism. Full-blown Gnosticism doesn't come until a little bit later, but still the very seeds are planted there. Uh, Gnostics who put knowledge over experience. And as long as I know certain things, it really doesn't matter how I live. And so when he comes to the end of the book, 
He says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Major question. Is he saying that some people don't know that they're saved and he wants them to know that they're saved? No, he's not saying that. What he is saying is that if you claim to be saved, these things, and he elucidates a number of things throughout the book, if these things are true to you of you that I've written about in this epistle, then you can know you have the genuine item. That is to say, your experience, your fruit gives testimony to what you say. And so, for instance, by this we know we pass out of death into life. We love the brethren. Someone listening to me today do not love the body of Christ. They have no concern for the local assembly, no concern for the local church. John would say you have good reason to question either whether or not you have a relationship with God, but certainly that you are not in fellowship with God. So he says in verse 5, to come to your question in verse 8, context is everything. This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light And in him, there's no darkness at all. God is light. That means he's holy. The scripture uses the term light sometimes in reference to uh, knowledge versus darkness, not having knowledge, or sometimes it's used to refer to holiness versus sinfulness. And John uses it actually both ways. This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him, there's no darkness, no sin at all. If we say... And that's an important phrase for John, if we say, if this is our confession, that we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And so there are some Christians who say, you know, I'm right with God, I have fellowship with the Lord, and yet there's compromise in their heart. There's sin in their heart. And he's saying, you're not really practicing the truth. If we walk in the light, however... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. So the blood of Christ not only saves us, the blood of Christ cleanses us to be able to continue, not to be saved, that's secure, that's eternal, but to continue to walk closely with God. And so the Bible makes a distinction between our union with Christ and our communion with Christ. Again, our our relationship with the Lord is, and our fellowship with the Lord. If we say, and this is the verse you're asking, is it harsh? It's not harsh. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, people have taken verse 8 differently. Some have said, well, this is a reference to people who say that once you are saved, the sin nature is eradicated. And certainly some of the Gnostics taught that false teaching. And again, this is kind of a pre-Gnostic setting. Uh, But then there are some people who, you know, I don't really sin. I just make mistakes. And they don't really own their sin. You know, I'm not perfect. I'm only human. And you hear Christians say that sometimes. and, And that's not really genuinely dealing with the sin issue. We have to own our sin, and that's why he will say in the next verse, if we confess our sins, the word confess is two Greek words bled together, homo, lageo, lageo, logos, it means word or to say, homo, same, so we speak of homo sapiens and homosexuals, and 
literally means to say the same thing, to say what God says. And so if we say, well, you know, I'm just weak, we're all weak, I'm just human, you know, I just make mistakes, and you don't really own your sin and call it for what God calls it, rebellion, then you're not going to be able to move forward. And so we are to truly confess our sin, and then God, again, this is not a salvation verse. It has nothing to do with salvation. A lady came to meet the pastor on Sunday night. Why should God let you into heaven? I confess my sins to God. No, that's not why God lets someone into heaven. If that were true, and a lot of people think it is, well, God's forgiving. If I'm just sorry and I confess my sins, God will forgive me. That would be like a murderer standing before a judge, brokenhearted, weeping, crying that he murdered someone, and he says, I'm truly sorry, and the judge says, oh, I can see those are real tears. You're free to go. That would be an injustice, and we all know the difference between what's right, what's wrong, what's just, what's unjust, what's fair, what's unfair, because the DNA that God has written into our hearts spiritually, his law, affirms those things. Now, our consciences can become calloused and insensitive and hardened, and we can even develop what the writer of the Hebrews calls an evil conscience, where you call good evil and evil good. But initially, we have that capacity to discern good and evil. And so God has to have a basis by which he can forgive us. He can't just say, I'm forgiving, you're free to go. The basis is the death of Christ. That's true when you're justified, and that's true as you continue to walk with the Lord. You can't make up for your sin by doing more good things. No, it's the blood of Christ that cleanses us. If we say we have not sinned, then we're making him a liar, and his word is not in us. And so in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we're trying to drag God down to where we are. In verses 8 and 10, we're trying to... um, boost ourselves up to where God is. And God is holy, and he expects us to walk in holiness. And the fact that when we fail, because we all stumble in many ways, that's not an excuse to sin. It's a reason not to sin. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. However, his point is, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Great question. It's not harsh. He's just dealing with truth. And if it sounds harsh, well, Maybe God's trying to give someone a kick in the pants. So let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Alberto from Savannah is on the line. Thanks for holding, Alberto. What's your question today? Yes, good morning, gentlemen. My question is, what is the proper context of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10? Because sometimes some people say that that we could, the Holy Spirit gives us the understanding of the deep things of God. But if that was so, some people might say, well, why would I need the Scriptures for then? If the Holy Spirit can give you all the deep things for God directly from the Spirit of God. It's a good question. So um, let me contextualize it. Paul is contrasting the wisdom of the world with God's wisdom. And he has already declared that the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. And so um, he describes what the world would call foolish as true wisdom. And so he said, I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. 
It's not that he was shaking in his boots when he shared the gospel with these people. He's using the expression as he does other places to describe his utter dependence upon God and the message that he preached. And my message and my preaching, which the next verse elucidates, and my were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul's argument is that when the Word is preached, it needs to be done in the Spirit's power. And that's what he's preaching, by the way. He's not like sitting there, you know, gazing on his navel and looking for some kind of, you know, illumination or revelation from God. He is interacting with the Scriptures. And so as you read his epistles, as you read his example in the Acts of the Apostles, he's reasoning daily in various places from the Scriptures. And so he's using the revelation of Holy Scripture. So that your faith, he said, would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And of course, the Bible itself is powerful. And when it's preached in the Spirit's power, it takes on a great it's a great tool to, in a great way in which to wield the sword of the Spirit. Yet we do speak wisdom among you who are mature, or wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom. And so again, he's speaking of the wisdom of God. And then in verse 10, he says, for to us, God revealed them his wisdom, these great truths uh, through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So an unbeliever can read the Bible, but he can read it with blind eyes. And so the Bible is the word given by the Spirit of God who illuminates the Holy Scripture. Sometimes Christians say, I had a revelation. No, you didn't have a revelation. The revelation of God has been completed. Now, there was a time in the history of the church to answer and pinpoint the issue that maybe is being raised, Alberto, uh, where you had people who were given direct revelation from God, and that was simply because the Scripture was not yet completed. And so God could speak through a tongue that was interpreted. It was a real language. He could speak through someone, a man or a woman, that would parallel today someone standing up in the church, a man or a woman, and reading the Bible. A woman can't preach the Bible, but she could read the Bible. Uh, Those would mimic what happened in the first century where someone stood up and there was a direct revelation given uh, because they couldn't turn to Ephesians or Galatians or Romans and other books because they had not yet been written. Now, interestingly, when the canon of Scripture The word canon is from a Latin word. It means a measuring stick. And our measuring stick for truth is the 66 books of the Bible. But when the Bible is completed, that supernatural revelation, church history records, ceased. It stopped. It ended. God stopped speaking directly through individuals. The gift of tongues dried up. Direct prophetic revelation stopped. Why? Because you didn't need them anymore. Because now we had a complete revelation that we could judge and evaluate all truth from. And if you just think about it, these people, and I don't know if this is a church you attend or people you're meeting, Alberto asked some really good questions, but if these are coming from the church that he's attending, he's in a stinking rotten church because consistently the questions you ask reflect biblical heresies. 
And so because we have a completed Bible today, if you think about it, and someone stands up and says, well, God spoke to me in this way, how do you know if it's true? The only way you know if it's true is if it matches Scripture. Well, what if it's beyond Scripture? Then he's adding to the Bible something that the revelation at the end of the Bible that God gave, the last book to be written by God, he warns not to add or subtract to Scripture. And so he's just reminding us that the Spirit of God illuminates truth. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. And that's what happens when you're born again. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, he'll say, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The moment you call upon Christ in faith, you are given the Holy Spirit. And by contrast, and again, context is everything, and this would blow out of the water the false teaching that you presented this morning from someone that you heard, but a natural man, by contrast, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually appraised. And so what is a natural man? You could paraphrase it, a non-Christian. In fact, some of the paraphrastic versions of the Bible do that. They just take a natural man and they say, he's a non-Christian, and rightly so. Um, Jude, verse 19, speaks of those who are devoid of the Spirit, and he calls them merely natural. They are without the Holy Spirit. And so apart from the Spirit of God, because no man draws himself into the kingdom of God, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. An unsaved person can't understand the gospel unless God opens his eyes up, but he opens his eyes up through the preaching of the word. For we are born again, Peter will say, not of, um, of physical seed, of natural seed, but of spiritual seed. Through, this, through, the, through the living and abiding Word of God. So it's through the living seed, the written Word of God, that the Spirit of God opens our eyes up. Beyond that, much of what you read in the Bible just seems stupid. I, I, I think of a lady that gave a testimony in the hallway to me, and she said, you know, I came one Sunday, and you were talking about how it was ideal for a mother to be at home, and I was just like steaming mad at you. But for whatever reason, I kept coming back, and now Christ is my Savior, and it's like, wow, this is what I want to do. What happened? A second birth. But you see, to a natural mind, that seems stupid. Listen, you send your daughters off to the university, and I'm not saying they shouldn't go, but you should prepare them. They're going to be lone rangers when they stand in these classes. And what do you hope to do when you graduate, Susie? Well, I hope if God will bless me with a husband to have children and to actually raise them. Oh, you want to do that? that that's stupid. You need a career. You see, your significance is in a career. And we've carried that same mindset right into the body of Christ. I'm not talking about simply secular work. I'm talking about women who think my career is like, going around and teaching Bible studies and traveling the country, and then I'm a woman of significance. Listen, some of those women that many of you who are listening to me admire, you would not want your children to turn out the way their kids turned out. 
they forsook the God-given role in the home to be a worker at home, and they have paid a huge price. I hope that helps. Let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Nicole from Monroe, North Carolina writes, I am in a group studying Revelation, and we were wondering if the Bible speaks to what will happen to babies born during the tribulation. Will they experience God's judgment and wrath, even though they are below the age of accountability? I believe I've also heard you mention in your sermons that if someone hears the gospel before the rapture and doesn't accept it, they'll have no other opportunity during the tribulation. I wanted to see if you would share the scripture reference for that as well. Thank you so much. Well, let me just quickly answer your second question. It's from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul is speaking of the coming Antichrist. He's assuring them that the day of the Lord had not started, that they had not missed the rapture, because one, the departure, which does not refer to the rapture, it refers to departing from the truth. And so the newer translations will use the word apostasy. You could translate it in ancient translations as departure because that's what apostasy is. But I think it's a little bit of a stretch to use that to try to build a pre-trib rapture. You don't need that verse to build a pre-trib rapture. But in either case, he's assuring them that they could not possibly have missed the rapture, that their catching up had not been missed because if they were in the day of the Lord, one, they would have seen the apostasy. uh, And it's not apostasy, but the apostasy, the departure, because during the great tribulation, there'll be the departure of all departures. And if they were in the day of the Lord, then the Antichrist would be on the scene. He's called by 30-some different titles in Scripture, and here he's called the man of lawlessness. He's called the son of perdition. And so let no one in any way deceive you for it, the, the day of the Lord, Uh, will not come. And the day of the Lord is not referring to a specific 24-hour day, but a broad sweep of time that begins with the tribulation and goes all the way through the millennial reign. So sometimes when people think of the day of the Lord, they think simply of the tribulation. That's one aspect of it. But there are other Old Testament passages that speak of the day of the Lord as a time of tremendous blessing. Why? Because the Messiah will be ruling and reigning on the earth. So let no one in any way deceive you, for it, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Uh, This is what we call the abomination of desolation. It's one of two aspects of how the Antichrist will defile the temple. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? By the way, that says volumes about the need to preach prophecy, because if you read the Acts of the Apostles, you discover that Paul was in Thessalonica for three weeks only, and yet he was telling them about prophecy and end times? Yes. Why? Because it's critical to a healthy church. And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And I have a whole sermon on this in our prophetic series that the restrainer is the spirit of God living in the church. He will remove the church in the light that we offer, the salt that we are supposed to 
disperse will be totally gone. There will be no objectionary voices initially at the start of the tribulation. No one to say, well, no, that's wrong. We shouldn't do that because the body of Christ that's light and salt will be gone. Now, God will raise up some new voices, nonetheless. Then that lawless one, referring to this Antichrist who will present himself as God, will be revealed with whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. And the revelation tells us that happens at Christ's second coming. And he'll bring an end to the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. He's empowered by the evil one with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness to those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, for what reason? Because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that so that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So these are people who had been encountered with the truth, the gospel message, and they had rejected it. Why? Because they loved wickedness. Now, listen, I've heard some people say, well, grammatically, um, this is not saying that, and this is something some Baptist preacher made up to scare people. Listen, some people ought to be scared with truth. Hell is a real place. In twain with um, the Spirit of God, where you don't respond to his wooing influence, you ought to be fearful about that. Because Jesus speaks of those who, because they did not believe, the devil has given permission that he might snatch the seed, that they will not believe and be saved. You don't draw yourself to God. No one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. He said, while the light is among you, believe in the light that you might become children of light. And then John says, though so many miracles were being done among them, they would not respond. And then Jesus said, for this reason, they could not respond. Because they would not respond, they could not respond. He, God, hardened their heart. He, God, blinded their eyes. He, God, stopped their ears. Judicial judgment. That happens today even. But it's going to happen in a widespread way for those who are left behind, who heard the gospel. And so, look, um, I love Tim LaHaye. He was a great brother. But remember, his books were fiction. (laughs) The Left Behind series were fiction. They were based a lot on biblical truth, but there was a lot of fiction in them, and so it's created confusion in one respect in that you have people getting saved who heard the plan of salvation clearly, powerfully, before the rapture, and yet they get saved during the tribulation. That won't happen. Now, God is the judge of those who've heard it clearly and with power. I'm not. There are some people who sit in churches that believe in the Bible, but the Scripture is not plainly, powerfully presented, and God will certainly give some of those an opportunity. Now, your second question is a little bit more involved, and it concerns about children. The question, Rick? um, Okay, so the question is, she is studying the Revelation, is wondering if the Bible speaks to what will happen to babies born during the tribulation. Will they experience God's judgment and wrath, wrath, even though they are below the age of accountability? Well, there's basically three answers that believers have given in reference to what happens after the rapture. Some will say no babies at all will be saved after the rapture because their argument is is that only those who have believed in Jesus will be caught up and the rest of those will be left behind. And sometimes they try to make a parallel 
between the flood and Lot's day. Obviously, in the flood, only eight persons in all were saved. Lot, Mrs. Lot, uh, Noah's, excuse me, Mr. Noah, Mrs. Noah, um, uh, his four sons and their four wives. Uh, there's no one else who is saved. I, I think there's an assumption that these four adult children who were married didn't have children, but just eight persons in all were saved. But nonetheless, it's clear that all the other children, babies, so forth, were wiped out in the great flood. Um, and so they would say, well, see, there we have with cataclysmic wrath, people who are left behind for torment. And then some would also point to Lot and say, well, just Lot and his two believing daughters escaped, but all the children who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, they were wiped out. Well, uh, I don't think I would draw a parallel from that, but I will say typically those who take this position that no babies will be included in the rapture typically also argue that only believing children will indeed ever the children of believing parents will ever be saved. So that's one position they're left behind. Seems a little cruel. I don't think the scripture teaches that. A second position is that infants and children will be raptured into heaven before the tribulation. And that's based on the truth that the children who die at an early age, the Bible doesn't speak of an age of accountability, it might be better to use the term, uh, Nicole from New Hampshire, the point of accountability, because a specific age is not given. Some would say, well, it's 12, because Jesus was in the temple reasoning biblical truth at the age of 12. Well, he could have maybe done that at 10, but uh, he did it at 12, and that's typically when young boys were bar mitzvahed, uh, mitzvah means law and or commandment, and bar means son of, and so someone became a son of the law, uh, typically at the age of 12, and so he would have been given that right uh, without being disrespectful to interact with the religious leaders in the temple, but he may have very well have been able to have answered and made the same presentation at 10 or 11. So kids are different. They develop differently. And so we have to keep that in mind. Some children can have a clear, crisp understanding of the gospel at six or seven or eight. And some, you talk to them and it just hasn't clicked. And then I meet with them a couple of years later, 10, 11, and 12. And it's like, you're talking to a different child. Uh, Something has happened. So with that said, the scripture is clear based on a number of texts like 2 Samuel 12, David loses his little baby. And he, of course, before the baby dies, he's fasting, he's praying, he's seeking the living God. Um, He overhears some of his servants that the baby is dead. He gets up, he washes himself, he comes and eat. They're, of course, afraid to tell him that the child dies because he's so despondent. They're afraid that if he gets the news, he might even harm himself. And they say, we don't get you, David. What's the deal here, man? When the baby was sick, you were despondent. Now the baby's dead and you're sitting here at the table eating. And his answer is, look, when the baby was alive, there was still a possibility God might have heard my prayer and answered positively. God did hear his prayer, but God answered negatively. 
and he said, I can't go to the baby, but the baby, excuse me, the baby can't come to me, but someday I'll go to the baby. What's he affirming? He's affirming that he's going to see his child again. Some would say, well, that's just the place of the grave. That's just stupid. That's nonsense. That's an abuse of Old Testament Sheol and understanding what it means. You come into the New Testament, Matthew 18, Matthew 19, Mark 10, where you have clear analogies where Jesus likens the the kingdom of God to little children. Um, So Jesus, for instance, um, says, whoever then humbles himself as this child He is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one uh, such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble. So Jesus likens the uh, openness of a little child to faith. But if someone causes one of these little open-hearted children to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. It's interesting. There are different kinds of millstones in the first century, and if you were to read this in the New American Standard, you'd see a little footnote, heavy millstone, and if you went down into the marginal reading, it would say literally um, a millstone turned by a donkey. That's what's in view here, a millstone turned by a donkey, a huge millstone, and Jesus is likening those who cause little children to stumble. You know, I met a girl, she couldn't have been maybe 14 years old on Sunday, and she, we were eating at Sonic, and she was with her friend, and her friend went to a church that, as far as I know, has the gospel, but she's been going there for years, and how sure are you go to heaven? I'm 50-50, and what do you think you'd have to do to be 100? She didn't have a clue, and her father was a leader in the church and all this stuff, and I thought, man, what's going on at that church? I think a rock and roll band dark light, smoke, that's the problem. Lay all that aside. Uh, Her friend had this LGBTQ shirt on, you know, and I said, can I ask you a question? I said, how sure are you? She said, I'm not religious. I said, can I tell you why you're not religious? She said, sure. I said, the reason you're not religious is because in your heart of heart, the things represented on the front of your church, uh, excuse me, on the front of your shirt are reprehensible to God. I said, fornication, that's premarital sex, adultery, thievery, drunkenness, homosexuality, lesbianism, transgenderism. Those are sin, and you know it's sin in your heart of heart. The Bible says it's sin, and because you don't want to admit it's sin, you're not religious. You are repressing God out of your thought life. And I'm thinking, who caused this young girl to stumble? Where is she getting? I'll tell you where some of them are getting it. They're getting it right here in the public school systems in South Carolina. Yes, in Beaufort County. I've heard it in my office counseling. And a man that our church supports last or two, 10 days ago was up in the state house testifying before senators about pornography and homosexuality and transgenderism that is being taught in our public school systems. Here in South Carolina, he documented it. He went to some of their school libraries, found the books that these kids are being exposed to. This is like evil beyond evil. And so Jesus doesn't look highly at those who cause little children to stumble. He says, if, um, and then he says, see to it. 
he said, well, let me just turn back a little bit. He said in verse 12, he said, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go and search for the one who is straying? Yes, he does. And if it turns out that he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have gone astray. And then he goes back to the earlier discussion on children. See to it then. So it is not the will of your father that one of these little ones should perish. Uh, In the next chapter in Matthew 19, he again affirms this same biblical truth concerning children in chapter 19 in verses, uh, starting in verse 13, then some children were brought to him so that they might lay his hands on them and pray and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So for Jesus to liken the kingdom of God to little children, by the way, he does the same thing in Luke 18 and that not to be true, then Jesus is using an illustration that has error in it to teach a biblical truth. And Jesus, who is the truth, only uses truth to teach truth. So some would say no babies will be included in the rapture. The problem with that is Jesus likens the kingdom of God to little children. And really, practically, it just seems rather cruel and not consistent, not only with what Jesus has revealed in these passages, and we didn't read Mark 10, but we could read Mark 10 as well. That's on my granddaughter's grave, uh, Mark chapter 10. Um, it would be cruel, it seems, for God to leave little infants, little children behind to fend for themselves. No, I think they'll go up in the rapture. Some take a third view that infants and young children of Christians only will be raptured and go to heaven, and that the children of unbelievers will be left behind. It's, it's difficult to come to that conclusion, and they use 1 Corinthians seven fourteen, where Paul is dealing with mixed marriages, and he speaks to a woman or a man who's married to an unbeliever, and their question to Paul, because in 7-1, he says, about the things you've wrote, written me, and so he begins to tick off answers to the many questions that they presented to him. And maybe through their search of Ezra, where Ezra said, put away your unbelieving spouses. That was a different context. That was a Jewish audience. God was trying to preserve the nation. Um, He makes it very, very clear that they're to stay in the marriage, if at all possible, stay in there. Why? Because the unbelieving spouse is sanctified through the believing husband or vice versa, and not to mention the children are also holy. That is, they're set apart. God can use it. But to, to argue from that, that the children of lost people are left behind. It's a stretch. It's a push. I don't think you can build that from Scripture. All right, good question. I take the second position. All infants and children will be raptured before the tribulation. Pregnant women, they'll carry their loved ones up. Maybe they'll be depregnatized, if there's such a word, in a moment's time. But I think that's the biblical position to take. Is it possible, say, for a 10- or 11-year-old to be left behind? Well, they'd have another seven years before the tribulation period is over if they live that long. So, again, God in his sovereignty and wisdom will display perfect love, perfect holiness, perfect justice.
Okay, we've got less than four minutes left, all right, all uh, so right. I think we can go to a quick question. Uh, Bob from Okatee would like you to direct him to Bible passages supporting the gap between week 69 and 70 in Daniel's 70-week prophecy. Well, it's right there in the passage. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, and we know the exact date that that decree was issued by Artaxerxes, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and then it will be built with the plaza, the moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. He'll be, he'll be, he'll be killed, uh, we know, by crucifixion, and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, so Jesus dies 32 A.D., and then 38 years later, 70 A.D., the sanctuary is destroyed. So right there, there's a gap of at least 38 years. And then he goes on and he describes the rest of the things that will take place. And so it hasn't all been done yet. And so the gap now has been nearly 2,000 years. And of course, um, Jesus spoke of a future time when he was on the Mount of Olivet. And we discussed this just even last Sunday about the um, destruction of the temple where not one stone would be built upon another. And so he was going back to the prophecy of Daniel and reminding them of what Daniel had written and how that would literally actually be fulfilled, and it was. So there's a a built-in gap of time between the 69th and the 70th week that is unbroken. But I would suggest you go back and listen again Maybe not the most recent sermon I did, but the three sermons I did back-to-back on the 70 Weeks Prophecy, I think that would be useful to you. Well, we got some questions done today. There were important questions, so I took the time to give you an intelligent answer, I hope, for you to search the Scriptures, to study yourself, to see if these things be true. If you have questions, you can go to searchthescriptures.org. There's a drop-down menu, Ask Dr. Brogy a Question. You can submit your question. It may take a couple of months to get answered, but sooner or later we will answer it. Uh, You will get an email back letting you know when it was answered, and you can listen to the Bible line for that day and get your question. Someone asked me, why don't you just type answers? Someone asked me that last Wednesday night after the service. I said I would be answering questions all day. I wouldn't get anything done. Uh, But I can speak a lot faster than I can type, and so that's why we verbalize. Though I do answer many questions by typing, but those are what I call emergency situations, and usually those of pastors. um, Problems are endless. You do the best you can and help those whom God gives you to help. Thanks for being with us today on The Bible Line. God bless you as you walk with Jesus Christ.